just to touch on a few things this man did so you can get a sense of the scope of this college dropout, one year of college, that was it, didn't do very well at that. But within his first year after all the parades, Lindbergh literally traveled the world uh, surveying some of the very first air routes, well, the first air routes. I, I can almost guarantee that any flight you have ever taken in this country or in this hemisphere was first navigated, first surveyed by Charles Lindbergh. In 1929, you know, he began to think, what are the great innovations in transportation? Here I've become this symbol of transportation. Well, there's been the wheel, there has been the hull, there has been the wing. And he thought, I think there's a fourth one, and that is the rocket. And he began to search out people who were doing research in rocketry in the late 20s, and he found a rather quiet professor in Massachusetts named Robert Goddard, and he single-handedly saw to it that Robert Goddard was funded for at least the next decade so that, literally, the American program in space and rocketry to this day all can go back to the launch pad that Charles Lindbergh got funded. In the early 30s, when his sister-in-law suddenly developed a heart problem, now again, this is, a, this is a one year of college, and not a good student at that, to remind you, but when his sister-in-law was suffering from heart disease, and the doctor said, there's nothing we can do because we can't operate on the heart, uh, we can't fix it because how do we keep it beating? And he said, surely there's a way to invent some sort of an artificial heart, some sort of pump that could keep the tissue perfused, that can keep the organ going. And of course, it was decades down the line. But Lindbergh himself went to the leading doctor in the world, perhaps, at that point, who was working at the Rockefeller Institute in New York named Alexis Carell. And the two of them together designed a perfusion pump that literally became one of the rudimentary steps on the way toward an artificial heart. In the mid-30s, this man, because the press was so awful wherever Charles Lindbergh went, I mean, he just could not walk out of a door anywhere and not be attacked by the press. He finally had to move abroad, and he moved to England, he moved to France. He traveled all over Europe in the 1930s. And in the mid-30s, he received a rather secret telegram from the American embassy in Berlin that said, Colonel Lindbergh, this is an unofficial letter. It's not even coming up from, you know, from the ambassador. This was from an air attache in the American embassy. He said, I think the Germans are building up the most incredible air force, a Luftwaffe, in the world. And we know very little about it. But I bet if you, Charles Lindbergh, came over to this country just to look it over, just to see what's going on, the Germans, because you are Lindbergh, would show off what they have and what they've done. And indeed, over the next three years, Lindbergh went over six times, and the German government did precisely that. They took him around to factories. They, they took him all over. They took him in planes. They answered all his questions, except, ironically, about rockets, which he kept asking about. Those they kept hidden, to be sure. But what he saw was terrifying enough for him that he said, I've got to come home 
to America. And he did at the end of 1938. He came back to America, and he went right to see the president, Franklin Roosevelt. And he said, I have to warn you of a couple of things that are happening. One is, Europe is about to go to war. The second thing is, the Germans are building this incredible air force. The third thing is, nobody can beat that air force, and we have better start building one. And the thing we ought to do is not fight over there, but have this force at the ready, such that when all of Europe goes to war, as indeed it did in that moment, we will be prepared to defend America first. Now, one of the things that is so badly taught in American schools, certainly it was badly taught to me at Palisades High School in Los Angeles, is that the America First movement was this anti-Semitic, right-wing, Midwest, middle-aged, basically Republican movement. And what I learned doing my research was it is perhaps one of the most interesting and misunderstood grassroots movements in the history of this country, which for two and a half years wanted nothing more than to keep America out of a European war. And Charles Lindbergh became the primary spokesman for this particular movement and gave some extremely controversial speeches all over the country, which would always be followed within a day or two by a speech from the President of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, who was extremely eager for us to get into the war. And it became one of the great debates in American history. In the end, Lindbergh made a very careless statement in a speech that he paid for for the rest of his life because it was construed or possibly misconstrued, he always believed, as anti-Semitic. And as a result of that, he began to be toppled from the great pantheon. And of course, when Pearl Harbor happened, we immediately went into the war. This was three months after that speech. Now, patriot that he was, army man that he was, Lindbergh immediately wanted to fight in World War II, and Franklin Roosevelt would not let him do it. He did not want to give Lindbergh a chance to become a hero again, and he didn't want him to basically clean up the tarnished reputation. So Lindbergh flew as a private citizen. He became a private test pilot for Henry Ford, for the Ford Motor Company, basically, which was making a lot of the motors for American aviation, a lot of those engines, and indeed went on 50 bombing missions uh, without benefit of a uniform. While over there, MacArthur heard that he was flying all around the South Pacific and that he was not only a successful bombardier, but that he was coming back from all his sorties with more gasoline than anybody else. So he's clearly flying differently than everybody else. Could he not teach the American pilots how to fly better, which he did? During all these years that Lindbergh is flying all over the country, all over the world, this great symbol of aviation, as he is to this day, he began to see civilization creeping everywhere in some instances, in places that civilization should not be. And he began to raise this question, is civilization progress? He began to worry about the loss of wildness, the loss of wilderness in the world. He began to see, as we heard so much today, this morning, about 
the disintegration of the earth, the air, and the waters. And in fact, I mean, I'm, I'm always reminded of this when I, when I see Dr. Earle, uh, because Charles Lindbergh, late in his life, said, you know, if I were a young man today, he was saying in the 60s and 70s, he said, I probably wouldn't go into aviation. I'd be going underwater, because that's the great new frontier. And he would have spent the, his life doing that, I think, uh, intrepid as he was. But he became, in his final 20 years, while he was trying to duck publicity wherever he could, and he did, except for one cause, anything that might save the balance of the earth, the ecosystems, anything that would save, again, the air, the earth, and the water. And late in life, around the time the supersonic transport was being voted on, Lindbergh became a very outspoken spokesman against the supersonic transport. And he made a very simple statement, which is, if I had to support either birds or planes, this is Charles Lindbergh, I'd support birds. Very, very interesting. And so he did, and so he spent the last years of his life. Plagued, as I said, by publicity, and so when at age 72, in New York, the doctor said to him, now General Lindbergh, you have less than two weeks to live. And Lindbergh said, well, I'd like to die at home. And the doctor said, of course, uh, you know, I'm, I'm against it. You should really not leave this hospital. But sure, you can go back to Connecticut from this New York hospital. And he said, no, no, I want to go to Hawaii. I want to go to Maui, uh, where he had a third home. Uh, and indeed, the doctor said, General Lindbergh, you're in such terrible shape. Nobody will fly you there. And Lindbergh said, uh, nobody will fly me? Uh, get me a telephone. <laughs> and indeed, within two hours, he was on an airplane <laughs> and flying home to Maui. And just to show you how this man's mind worked, how his life worked, he had the burial plans all written out for everyone, what they should do, how his grave should be dug, how the publicity should be dealt with, so forth. As soon as I'm dead, be sure you put me in this coffin here, have somebody drive it right here, the church, have the service right away, do the burial within three hours. And indeed, he, the family did exactly what he said. There were about 14 people in this tiny church in Hana, Maui. And as they were walking out of the church, getting in their cars, driving away down the sinuous road, the first camera trucks were rolling into the, into the graveyard trying to get pictures of it. He knew exactly how to play it. Strangely, I think you can see some parallels in all these lives I've been trying to chronicle and the ones I've talked about a little today. But I'll just leave you with one bit of advice, this coming from the least educated of all my subjects, and that's Samuel Goldwyn. Goldwyn is, of course, famous for his Goldwynisms. It was Sam Goldwyn uh, who said, include me out. Uh, Goldwyn, who said anybody who goes to a psychiatrist should have his head examined. Uh, Goldwyn, who bought the screen rights to Lillian Hellman's play. Um, uh, I just forgot the name of her. So, no, uh, not, no, not Little Foxes. Uh, Children's Hour. And they said, but Mr. Goldwyn, don't you know the play is all about lesbians? And he said, that's not a problem. We'll just make them Americans. Um, <laughs> but Goldwyn did have this one great piece of advice, I think. And, and I think it is most applicable to this group. 
And it is this. You know, in Hollywood, the adage is, you're only as good as your last picture. And Goldwyn always used to say, you're only as good as your next picture. And I think, when I, when I think, <laughs> when I look at Max Perkins, having discovered a Fitzgerald and a Hemingway and thinking, okay, but who's the next James Jones and Alan Payton? Or Sam Goldwyn fashioning his movies to keep changing with each decade. Uh, or Woodrow Wilson and his concentric circles getting bigger and bigger. Or Charles Lindbergh constantly reinventing not just the world but himself. And this is so appropriate to what I think Naomi was referring to today, too, that you've got to do some self-examination before you can examine what's out there. But I think it is great advice for all of you starting careers, all of us in the middle of our careers. Remember this, you are only as good as your next picture, whatever that is. Thank you very much.